I recently did a study session on the very important topic of halachic sources involving the status of the fetus and issues around what is debated today in the Supreme Court and made decisions about, states are legislating about, which is the right to choose, the right to life, the status of abortion and how we think of it morally and legally. And I'm also going to try to give you the options to really get a flavor of the debates that we're drawing upon in the literature. I'm going to try to introduce you in a very short time to the main issues that relate to the recent Supreme Court decision and sort of the arguments therein. Here we go. First off, the usual disclaimer, but it's an important disclaimer. Legal discussions are not the same thing as ethical discussions. So, for example, legal discussions relate to the status of things and how they interact with precedent and law. But sometimes legal terminology and ways of thinking can be offensive because the issues that they're bringing up may be hypotheticals because they're interested. Well, what happens? Does a status change from here to here? Or um, how, what precedent can we use to apply? It's different from an ethical discussion, which would be re- like an ethicist would be presented in a, a corporation or a nonprofit or a university where someone says, here, the following cases before us, what is the most ethical thing to do? So what I'm going to do right now is a halachic or legal discussion, not an ethical discussion. We're not talking about, okay, there's a woman who wants to have an elective abortion at a certain time. What would Judaism say? That's an ethical question. That's saying, well, like, what would a rabbi say about that? What would the right moral decision be? Here, I want to look at what comes up in the legal corpus. What legal distinctions would come into play? Part of the reason I mentioned that is one of the earliest we'll find is, for example, um, in, a, in a legal text, you may get that something has the status of, let's say, water. It has the legal status of water. It doesn't mean it is water. It does. It just means it has that legal status. And so... Uh, try to separate the legal language from the ethical application initially. What we're interested in is precedent, um, concepts that have come through legal reasoning that could influence the way we think today. So here we go. The most famous section of Torah that launched um, the legal discussions about what the status of a fetus comes from Exodus 21, chapter 21. If men strive, if men are fighting, And they wound a pregnant woman, presumably by accident, right? Because it's the men who are fighting, so that her her fruit be expelled. But there's no further ason, there's no further harm. Then shall he be fined as her husband shall assess, and the matter placed before the judges. But if there is harm, then shall you give life for life. Now, the context for this is the issue of sort of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, which is not about if someone breaks out your tooth, you kick out their tooth. It's based on the principle, it is, launches the principle of compensation. So therefore, if um, someone damages someone else's eye, and it turns out that they rely on their eye for their job, then the compensation will be higher than for someone who does not rely on that eye for their job. Similarly, for hands, if you're a surgeon and your hands are uh, damaged in a fight, the settlement will be larger. The damages will be larger because of your lost income or inability to do your job. It's not about, oh, well, you broke their hand, they'll break yours. So that it launches the principle of what is the value, uh, the compensatory value in damages. So in this case, the fact that a woman has a miscarriage accidentally 
what it, you know, is that the taking of a life and therefore would require the equivalent of a life be taken or the value of a life? And the answer is no. That um, there is an assessment from the husband, but basically it's along the lines of a limb or it's along the lines of perhaps even less than a limb. It, it is a part that shall be assessed. But, so, that this is the original source for the arguments that we will see that relate to whether a fetus is considered part of the woman's body, whether it's considered a life, whether causing the end of a pregnancy is the taking of a life, or is it the taking of something else? And this begins us in the direction of taking something else. That said, it's very important here that there are two directions that this goes in in the Second Temple period. The first is Rashi, the rabbinic commentator of the Middle Ages, but he is very good at summarizing the mainstream rabbinic discussion understanding, which is this. What is the meaning of the second conditional of further harm? If people strive, a pregnant woman is um, so that in such a way her fruit is expelled, but there's no further harm, then he'll should be fined as husband shall assess and the matter placed before the judges for what that is. But if there is harm, then you give life for life. So what's, what's the further harm? Mainstream rabbinic discussion, at least from Rashi's point of view, although there are other rabbis who take, who, who counter this, but still this is the main way of understanding, is that the, no further harm to the woman. So if the woman, she falls, she has a miscarriage, but there's no further harm to the woman, then we look at what uh, the judges will say. But, and if any, fur- so, and if any further, further harm follows, it means to the woman. So we're not talking about further harm to the fetus, it's to the woman and the further harm to the woman. I put here what the Septuagint says, nevertheless. The Septuagint is in many ways an excellent translation of the Bible. It's the translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek and decisions within it become very, very influential. And it is not to be ignored. It's not a bad translation by any means. But the Septuagint takes the word ason harm here and takes it in the direction of its ason, its harm to the fetus. So what it says here is, if there, but if it is fully formed, he shall pay life for life. So the main Pharisaic, the main rabbinic understanding of this verse is that this is uh, causing a miscarriage is not taking a life. But the Septuagint goes in a different direction and says, if the fetus is fully formed, it is life for life. Now that raises the question, what do we mean by fully formed, right? But it opens, it, it very much opens the door for a discussion about the fact that a fetus still in the womb, if it's fully formed, is alive. And that is very influential for Christian discussions today. And that's not accidental because the Septuagint is extremely influential in the self-understanding of the early church of what the meaning of the Hebrew Bible is. So what we could say, perhaps to oversimplify a little bit, but importantly to understand the contours of this discussion, the history of debate in religion about abortion, uh, is that there's a bit of a divergence in a very early period 
the period um, really prior to the beginning of the early church, the early rabbinic period, the second temple period, where there is an understanding that there's one branch that says, if the fetus is fully formed, then it is murder to take its life. And another, which is that it is part of the woman, and this verse is referring to damage to the woman, not to the fetus. I would say that Rashi's view becomes predominant in Jewish thought. Uh, And uh, the view that he is reflecting, because it's dominant in the thought before he's even alive. He is is announcing, he's enunciating the primary Jewish understanding of the text. But there is another understanding of the text that's highly influential in Christianity, and we can see it reflected in the Septuagint. Now, to show that that understanding is has a basis is in the early rabbinic period, you have the Neoplatonic philosopher Philo, whose ideas are, are reflect the milieu of Neoplatonic thought, which is highly influential on, in, in early Christianity. And he's a Jewish philosopher, and this is not a legal text. But what he says is the first clause refers to the child being unformed, meaning it's not viable. And the second refers to one that is formed. What does this mean? For such a creature as that is a man, requiring nothing more than to be released and sent out into the world. While that is, this is not a legal distinction, it shows someone, in a way, exploring this important question. Do we want to differentiate status of life within the womb or of moral status, legal status? of the development within the room and make distinctions therein? And the answer is, yes, that is going to come up in Jewish thought, and we already see it here. Philo takes it to be, if the fetus can essentially breathe on its own, is viable, and I know that this doesn't say breathe. That comes up in other rabbinic thought. Um, It's what he means, right? He doesn't know about neonatal units and ventilators. Um, But because he says it, this would be a child that requires nothing more than to be released and sent out into the world. Nothing, no extra assistance. So that if the child could come out and would be ready, would, would be viable and alive, uh, and certainly breathing and breathing and, and sustained on its own, then this could be considered murder. Again, it's not a halachic text, but it's an important observation that is looking at what we would mean by even taking the Septuagint seriously, that taking this line of thought of saying, well, when are you going to start saying that this is a life and this is murder if, that, if, if the fetus, if, if the, the baby inside the womb, if when it exits the womb, it would otherwise have been able to be viable and stay alive on its own. And that is a distinction that might have might be very useful today, in my personal opinion. Let's look at another text, Mishnah Nida. Mishnah is published around 200 of the Common Era, is the basis for the commentary uh, known as the Talmud. And it says, a one-day-old baby boy inherits and transmits. One who kills him is guilty of murder, and he counts to his father, to his mother, and to all his relatives as a fully grown man. This deals with issues around <clears throat> purposes of inheritance and infant mortality to try to understand, well, if you want to go in the direction, like, let's just take a child who is already born. What if a child who is born only lives for a short time for one day and dies? 
do they count as if they were a life that died? And here the Mishnah is saying, for a one-day-old child does have um, certain legal statuses that would reflect being a life. And this is after the womb. This is after coming out of the womb. So some of the questions I mentioned here, is viability outside the womb a definition of human life? And is there a standard for murder? And can this be separated from viability? So viability is an issue here. It is mostly around uh, Jewishly whether the child is viable outside the womb without interventions. And that would be where there might would be a status for murder. But so far, not within the womb, although the Septuagint um, could lead the church and Christianity in a direction to want to say more. Let's look at a little bit about the gradations. This is from the Talmud in 69b of Yavamot. If a woman is found pregnant until the 40th day, it is only mere fluid. Now, um, it's, 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 it has the legal status of water. For people who look at these issues around abortion, uh, from a Jewish point of view, this is considered ex- just foundational text and extremely important. I can't find any debate, really, um, or there is no significant debate that within the 40 days since conception, the zygote um, is considered to be the embryo is, has the legal status of water. I'm not saying it is water, but has the legal status of water with all of the implications, meaning should anyone damage it? Should elective abortion uh, take place within 40 days? There's no restriction because there's no crime. And by implication, no ethical issue either. Um, there's no crime in doing something to water and expelling water. This is an issue that is highly ignored. I mean, in my opinion, it's not given the weight that it should, that is due to it in contemporary debates because uh, not everywhere is the over-the-counter, is the day after, morning after pill available, over-the-counter and easily accessible to people who need it. And it should be. In other words, the only, viola- the only issue around the morning after pill would be whether we want to make illegal or against Judaism any form of reproduction. The only violation it could possibly have would be on, on the principle that we must be fruitful and multiply. And so that's only an issue of whether we're allowed to have um, interventions about reproduction um, that, are, that are prophylactic. But there's certainly, basically, since so many unwanted pregnancies happen in such a way that they um, are known very early to be unwanted, or if contraception fails, uh, or if it wasn't used, people know quickly that should, the woman woman knows quickly, should I have gotten pregnant, I I, I wish I weren't, then we basically have 40 days um, to for the woman to take a morning after pill and have an intervention in that way. And so that's something that is very important to understand would not be a violation of Judaism, unless you want to say that the, the Genesis commandment to be fruitful and multiply um, overrides that. That's a case about um, contraception. In Mishnah in Nida, if she miscarries on the 40th day, she need not be since her prior trip to the mikvah, she need not be concerned that it was a fetus. 
If she miscarries on the 41st day, she should sit for the required number of days for a male or for a female and for being a nida. Rabbi Ishmael says on the 41st day, she should sit for the required number of days for one who gives birth to a male and for being uh, in a period of ritual impurity. On the 81st day, she should sit for a male and for a female. And for being a nida, because the formation of a male is completed in 41 days and a female in 81. And the sages say this and that are both completed in 41. Okay, this is, an, this is an example of where we're drawing something from a legal discussion. In the Torah, it states that if a woman gives birth to uh, a male, she is restricted from being in the public. She basically has maternity leave uh, for a certain number of days, and that day is doubled if she gave birth to a female, to a baby girl. So a question comes up legally, which is, well, what if she miscarries? Does she observe those lengths? But it produces an interesting discussion here because in this case, it basically says, yes, we already established for the first 40 days, it's like water. But the discussion that arises from, from, uh, being, from a maternity leave is established like, well, does some leave apply here? And there is even an attempt, but there's a discussion back and forth is, is there really a distinction between male and female after the 48th day? And at least it's an open question. And the reason it's significant is because really what we're doing in this discussion, what I'm trying to do, and what I think all of us are trying to do when we look at the Supreme Court, is if you're going to stay away from the extremes, you're trying to understand, can we divide things into trimesters? Can we divide things into months? Do we want to say that um, the status of what's inside the womb at seven months is different than at three months? And that would have different legal implications or moral implications. And so this is an attempt to say there is a distinction after 40 days. And the question is, like, how much of a distinction? Is it male and female? What does it mean that it is starting to form? But the important thing is that I would say that for me, what this text is saying is that don't say it's really just water after 40 days, that there really is something happening here that's worthy of discussion. Don't just end up saying something later like, Oh, you know, what's inside the womb? Okay, maybe it's not the status of water, but it's like a woman deciding to have a cosmetic surgery, right? It, um, it's a part of the woman's body. Here, there's a sense in which there's the development of, of a, I want to say a life, but there's development of an organism. But distinctions here are happening, and that should be acknowledged. Um, and so that's why I wanted to include this text. In the Talmud Sanhedrin 72b, Rav Chista raised an objection to Rav Huna from a Baraita. If a woman was giving birth and her life was being endangered by the fetus, the life of the fetus may be sacrificed in order to save the mother. But once his head has emerged during the birthing process, he may not be harmed in order to save the mother, because one life may not be pushed aside to save another life. Now Rashi, again, giving us sort of the mainstream rabbinic take on this, interpretation of it, its head came out. With a woman... Who, pardon me for the mistake, with a woman that has experienced difficulty giving birth and is in mortal danger, is what we're talking about. And it is taught in the first section of this teaching, the midwife extends her hand and cuts it up and extracts the pieces. As the entire time that, that it has not gone out into the air of the world, it's not considered a living soul. And so it is possible to kill it to save the mother. But when its head came out, we cannot touch it to kill it as it is like a born baby. And we do not push off one soul for the sake of another. It's a very famous text. And there's a lot going on in here. 
So let me start with this point. We can certainly imagine a situation today, let alone in antiquity, where someone would rather would say that the price of giving birth is the potential death of the mother and the baby needs to be saved. This is a very, very important text and mainstream in Judaism that it's not that one might have the option to have a late-term abortion if it threatens the mother's life. It's actually saying one ought to because I think it is trying to prevent the case where people, especially men, might say that, but including men, might make decisions about the woman and say, you know what, we got to keep going with this, even if it looks like I might lose the life of the mother. It's saying you may not do that. It's saying before the baby emerges from the birth canal, it, you, you, may, you must prioritize the mother's life. And so, it, you know, if, the, if her life is being endangered, the life of the fetus must be sacrificed in order to save the mother. And then this becomes later connected to, and this becomes challenging and complex. The famous principle in the Torah where while one is, one may take premeditated action to kill someone who is in the process of trying to kill someone else the, the, or, or putting someone else in mortal danger. The example coming from the text that says, if someone enters your home during daytime and you kill them, then you cannot say it was self-defense um, if, 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 you, if you sort of uh, preemptively kill them before there's a struggle, right? You're like, someone's in my home. Um, I don't know what they're doing here and I shoot them. The Torah says that if it's during the daytime, you're guilty of murder. You can't, but if it's at nighttime, you are not, you are blameless. And the context being that presumably when someone's coming into your home late at night, they, that's a very strange thing to do. And that as the rabbis expound on it, you can presume that if you confront them and try to have a conversation, they will likely hurt or kill you in order to escape. Whereas during the day, they might likely try to talk their way out of it. Um, and so that you can kill them and, and it's an act of self-defense, um, even if you don't understand the full story because it's at night. That becomes related to, this is called the case of the Rodef. Someone, they can be seen as someone who is in the process of, even if it's not like premeditated, they're, in the, they're within a process that would lead to your murder. So here, the unborn child is considered to be in the process, not necessarily intentionally, but within a process that would lead to the mother's death. And therefore, um, it's, it's an act of self-defense to, uh, if the mother's life is in danger, even if we don't know for sure that it is, but um, there's reasons to believe, if there's reason to believe that there is, then the unborn child can be viewed that way. If the head came out, of, then you cannot. You have to continue with the birth. This is debated within the rabbinic literature, and some interpret the language to be a little bit different than Rashi. They think it means if the baby is in the process of, if the, if the baby's in the process of being born. Um, so the baby, the head doesn't have to emerge, but the baby is in the birth canal. 
is already in the vaginal area. So there is a debate here about exactly where, but the principle is agreed upon, which is that um, the life of the mother is not just a consideration, but is a requirement, and this determines the legal status of the child as well. But if the child emerges from the womb, um, that's where, you have, where the issue takes place. This is significant partly because in the discussions of late-term abortions, the way midwives did it today is that sometimes the head does emerge from the birth canal so that my understanding is a needle or another instrument can be used to kill the child kill the infant. Um, whereas in this period of time, they would actually reach in and they would do it within the womb. So one could say, if one wants to be strict by these texts, that one might consider a different method of late-term abortion than the one that we're using based on the specifics of these distinctions. Okay. What I've tried to show a lot is about issues of when this child, when it would be considered taking a life that we're talking about when the head emerges, when the child is viable outside the womb. We're talking about in the first 40 days, we should be, in my opinion, for those in, um, seeing the morning after pill, not as a form of abortion or miscarriage, but as a form of contraception. But in the in-between period, we see that there's development, but there's already strong moves toward it being in the domain of women and not in the domain of men to decide. And that then continues here with the issue of, is the fetus a part of the woman's body or is it not? In the case of a pregnant woman who was taken by the court to be executed, the court does not wait to execute her until she gives birth. So again, let's not think of this as, oh my God, why are we talking about women getting executed? Think of these, whether they are real or they're hypotheticals, they're here to establish legal distinctions that can be helpful to us. Um, so if a woman, there's a pregnant woman, she's supposed to get the death penalty. Do you wait till she gives birth? No, you do not. She's killed, she, they go ahead with the sentence. But with regard to a woman taken to be executed who has already gone into labor, the court waits to execute her until she gives birth. Again, this is kind of a continuation of what we're talking about before. There is a distinction about the baby woman being in labor, and often that has to do with seeing whether the baby is going to be viable outside the womb. But And let's see how... The Talmud has a lengthy discussion of this. But isn't it obvious that the court, um, like, why are we, why did the Mishnah, why do we inherit this teaching that's published around 200 CE? What, what is this meant to teach us uh, in the, here in the rabbinic period? Isn't it obvious that a court would execute a pregnant woman rather than waiting? After all, it is part of her body. So this is where we get what is often referred to as the Jewish position is that the fetus, the infant is part of the body until it emerges. The Talmud answers this question that it itself poses. It was necessary that we got taught this because it might enter your mind to say that since we learned in Exodus 21, if men strive together and hurt a woman with child so that her offspring depart, he'll, should be, he'll be fined as the woman's husband shall place upon him. Remember that part? The man will determine and bring to the court what he considers the damages to be of the worth of that part, which could relate. Maybe if he already has three male heirs and this is the fourth, it's not, you know, it might be worth less than if it's his only potential male. So it was up to the man to argue before the court. So we needed to get this thing about the, um, after all, it's part of the woman's body. We needed to get that because we might think that um, the fetus is considered to be the property of the husband. 
That's a very good point. If so, the court should wait until she gives birth before executing her and not cause him to lose the fetus. That makes perfect sense. It's a male world. Um, male are controlling things. The Torah leads us to think that the male is the one who's going to argue what the value of the fetus was. Um, the, the husband of the woman who had the uh, miscarriage caused by the fight. And so we have a whole major teaching to tell us, uh, 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 the man does not, the husband does not have a say here. Consequently, the Mishnah teaches us that the court does not take this factor into account. The Gemara asks, okay, another question, but why not say that indeed the court should delay her execution until she gives birth? But, like, but, but why not wait? Rabbi Abahu says that Rabbi Yochanan taught, the verse states, if a man be found lying with a woman married to a husband, committing adultery, then they shall also both of them die, the man that lay with the woman and the woman, from Deuteronomy 22. The amplifying term, both of them shall die, serves to add her fetus, teaching that it dies together with her. This is a very interesting midrash uh, interpretation. It seems to me clear that the context of Deuteronomy 22 is that the, people, the couple committing adultery will die. But there's a midrash, there's an interpretation that says the both of them refers to the mom and the child in front of her. The Mishnah teaches, with regard to a woman taken to be executed who has already gone into labor. The court waits to execute her until she gives birth. Um, the, the Talmud asks, what's the reason for delaying the execution in this case? Tell us exactly what's going on. And it answers, once the fetus uproots from its place and begins to leave the woman's body, it's considered an independent body and may not be killed together with the mother. Rav Yehuda says that Shmuel says and taught in the case of a pregnant woman who was taken by the court to, for execution, one strikes her opposite the womb, that is, on the abdomen, so that the fetus dies first, and so that she not suffer disgrace as a result of publicly bleeding from labor. So what do we learn from this? Um, we learn that the rabbis are importantly stating that the fetus is part of the woman's body, that the man does not have a agency in deciding what happens to it. And they could easily have done so, because the Torah implied that that should be the case. Um, and so, yes, the Jewish tradition is saying that this is not for men to decide. The agency of decisions comes to the woman. It is a dependent part of her body. We have to be careful. So legally, it is a part of her body. And, and that's very significant for these decisions about whether courts can govern what a woman can do with an unborn child, unborn a fetus, whether she can't do anything with it, when the Talmud seems to be saying, you might cut, the whole reason we have this discussion is you might, you might, it might occur to you, wait, shouldn't men have a say in this? And the answer is no, it is, it's, it's not. So let's go on to Talmud Gittin. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi holds a fetus is considered as its mother's thigh. That is, I would say like an organ, a limb a part of its mother's body, and it is as though the master transferred ownership of one of her limbs to her. So it is considered a, an organ, a limb of the woman's body. Um, I ask, how do both it is part of her body and, and the fetus dies coexist in this passage? But what I, the, the important thing, or an important thing I'd like to relate about this is that
just because it, on the one hand, let's hold two things. It is extremely significant that the Jewish tradition says it's the woman agency that matter. It's the woman's, the woman's agency over her body still that matters here. But at the same time, as we saw earlier, then when the execution takes place, they're careful to, to make sure the unborn fetus dies before the mother. They execute her in such a way that, they're, they're, um, that that happens. So it is acknowledging that this is not, this is different than like another organ of her body. So while it has status as an organ of her body, as a limb of her body, as an extension of her body, and that status is vital for understanding decision-making power and agency and what can be legislated and what can't. It is not to say that it is no, it, that's a legal status. It's not to say that what it really is, is just another part of her body. It is different. And that needs to be acknowledged. It just may not have legal implications, but it, so like the legal implications is she's still executed and they don't wait, but morally there's an acknowledgement that, um, you're trying to reduce suffering here in this case, because it's not a nothing. It's not just a limb. And so we're holding the agency with, this is not a nothing. In addition to this, you have to ask yourself, and this is what should probably have occurred to you already before even listening to this uh, video, is that our bodies by Jewish tradition do not belong to us. They are a gift from God. They, they are they come from the earth and are built from nature parts and they are not a possession of ours, right? We borrow them for our lifetime and then they are returned to the earth. You know, that's why we don't cremate and other kinds of things. We compost and we don't embalm. We are, we have to return them, compost them back into the earth um, because the, we, they were made from the earth. So we literally are built from cells and water and from different kinds of organelles and different kinds of E. coli and different organisms. And my E. coli don't really belong to me. I'm sort of, we're in a corporation and I, my body is on loan from God. We're not allowed to self-mutilate, right? We're not, there's discussions about, I don't know if it can be legislated, but there are serious discussions within Jewish ethics about whether it is against Jewish law to smoke now that we know, or to take in a carcinogenic substance, because if you are knowingly damaging um, your body, then you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to self-mutilate. So the, we have to hold that together with the fact that it may be the woman's agency, but it doesn't. Mean, we shouldn't exaggerate the Jewish tradition to be saying this is just an, uh, uh, um, this is just a cosmetic surgery of an extension of the woman's body. It's clearly not. It's viewed as something else, and it is not clear whether we have a right to electively mutilate our bodies. All the examples we've done so far are where the mother's life is in danger and um, we are not dealing here with elective abortion, unwanted pregnancy. And so that, that has to be acknowledged. So we can't just take the text that says, this is a woman's agency and also say at the same time that um, Jewish law is therefore saying there's nothing wrong with elective abortion. And these texts are not answering that question. But what they may be answering is that the state can't regulate it. It's not an act of murder. The, the texts are saying that. Elective abortion is not an act of murder. 
and it can't be regulated. And so, therefore, the Jewish tradition does say it can't be regulated as such. That should not be confused with the argument that the fetus is is just a part of the woman's body, and so no one can. Um, and that's all it is. It is more than that. Um, I'll say the Gemara. Okay, so. Continuing from the issue of inheritance, the Gemara explains, specifically in a case where the boy is one day old, that he inherits and then passes it on, but a fetus who died while still in the womb does not inherit and bequeath. The reason is that we presume that the fetus died first before its mother, and the son does not inherit through his mother while in the grave in order to bequeath her property to his paternal brothers. And the Gemara explains this matter. The presumption that the fetus dies first applies only in the case of natural death, in such a situation, since the fetus's vitality is minimal, the angel of death's drop of poison enters his body and cuts the two organs that must be severed in ritual slaughter, thereby killing him before his mother. But in a case where the mother was killed, she was executed, she dies first. Gamora asks, is it true that the fetus always dies first when the mother dies naturally? And they said there was an incident where there was spasms. And they say, think of it like a lizard. It's a spasmodic motion, does not indicate life. So that's one thing I think that comes up today, which is, but, you know, don't say this is just an inert object, I don't know what month, in the sixth month or in the fifth month, because there's motion within it. The rabbis are not, the rabbis understand what takes place within the womb. Someone at once asked me, uh, how would they know? There were a lot of dissections, there was a lot of biology done at that time. Some of the rabbis are very educated about it, some are not. But they're saying that the signs of life do not give it the... Li I'm not saying they're saying it's just a spasm, but they're saying that the signs of life for something that cannot live on its own should not be used to attribute to it the status of a life that therefore would be um, cause the consideration of murder. And I'm concerned that that would happen today in discussions. Well, look, this it moves. It has a certain level of life. It, it spasms. It coughs. We know that, and it's tragic, and it's awful. But for legal purposes here that does not make it a viable life and therefore a case of murder. And that's part of what the Jewish tradition is doing this. I want to end um, with a, a passage that I think is important in Christianity. And it is from what we see as a, it, it's not halachic. In other words, it is a, um, it's a tangent. It's a tangent, but sometimes tangents teach us a lot. From Sanhedrin 91b. There was someone named Antoninos. Now, whenever the Talmud gives you like a Greek name or a Roman name, sometimes they're making it up. And they're just saying that I want to consider what the Christians say, or I want to consider what the Greeks say, or I want to consider what the Neoplatonists say. But they don't want to say that they actually, that, that they don't want to talk about like that they're really sitting around thinking about this. So they say something like, you know, once upon a time, a, um, a Hellenistic philosopher said, and we replied this way. So it's their way of, of carrying on a debate. Um, so and to, so a, Hellenist, a Hellenist said to Rabbi Yehuda Anasi, from when is the soul placed in a person? Is it the moment of conception or from the formation of the embryo, the 40 days? So really it's a rabbi, the rabbi saying, um, okay, what's the status before the 40 days? Because we came up with the 40 day thing. Rabbi Yehuda Anasi said to him, it's from the moment of the formation of the embryo. Antoninus said to him, but that's not possible. Is it possible that a piece of meat could stand for even three days without salt as a preserved and wood rot? 
all they're saying is this. The rabbis are saying, okay, we said from 40 days on, it, it's an embryo. Um, but before that, it's not. And they're saying, really, is, it, 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 isn't it the case that um, it must have been a something before then? The embryo could not have exist for 40 days without a soul. Like, if it was really just water, it never worked. What really, tell me true, what is going on? And that, so it's, it's a tangent. It's saying, for legal purposes, it's water, but what is it really? Rather, the soul is placed in man from the moment of conception, said the Greek. Rabbi Yehuda Nasi said, you know what? Antoninus has a point. And there is a verse that supports him. As it is stated, Bekudatecha, um, your, your um, accounting, your providence has preserved my spirit from Job, indicating that it is from the moment of conception, pikida, that the soul is preserved within a person. Why do I bring this up? What, what's happening here is they're saying, we stick with the fact that up to 40 days, it has the legal status of water. But when the Christians or others say, come on, the soul enters a conception. Jeremiah said, God called to me and gave me my vocation when I was in the womb. We have quotes from Job that say similar things. You can find things in the Hebrew Bible, usually in those two places that say such things. The answer is, you know what? They're, they have a point. It just doesn't have legal implications. So I don't want to, you, you want to be careful when you're quoting Jewish thought by saying they were so far in this camp because they're willing to say it's not a nothing, but it's not a something either. So he's saying, you know, you know, you know, maybe he's got a point, but it doesn't have any legal consequences and it shouldn't. Um, but it is raising the question. In the name of Rabbi Ishmael, it was said that someone, um, a Noahide, meaning a non-Jew, is even guilty for killing of a fetus. What's the source? One who spills the blood of a person shall have his own blood spilled by another person. And they read this in a creative way to say, to read the, it as one who spills the blood of a person inside another person. Um, which person is inside another person? A fetus in a mother's womb. Does this have a legal implication? It does not. But it, it is a way of saying that the rabbis don't want to say, in my words, that it's not a nothing. Um, there are some rabbis who want to say, Rabbi Ishmael says, look, the elective killing of a fetus um, might be problematic. Whether we legislate against it, um, unclear, right? Considering all of the other legal corpus we have. But to say that a line like this is not to be found in the Jewish tradition would be to ignore it. Finally, what does this do to, like, let's say, modern orthodoxy? So the main modern orthodox decisor, orthodox decisor of the 20th century was Reb Moshe Feinstein, still the most influential. It would be forbidden to kill the fetus even to save someone's life. The exception would be to save the life of the mother during childbirth, not for any other need of the mother, which would definitely be forbidden. So he takes all these texts to say, you that elective abortion is against Judaism and that all of these texts are only saying that it is in the case of in the, to, you can only save the life of the mother during childbirth. And then even there, not when the child has already entered the birth canal. Um, but you have another 
Orthodox decisor, the um, Tzitz Eliezer, Eliezer Waldenberg, who said, if there is a danger to the mother from continuing the pregnancy, one should permit abortion without hesitation. Or if her health is poor and to cure her or to relieve her from great pain, it's necessary to abort the fetus, even if she's not in immediate danger. There's room to permit it based on the halakha authority's evaluation of the situation. So that even though Moshe Feinstein is the most influential of the orthodox decisors, um, you have some disagreement even there that he has become too strict. So given the sources that we have, so given the sources that we have, I hope you feel more informed to make your own decisions. Um, you can see that I'm trying not to push you in any particular, well, I mean, I'm pushing you within bounds of scope. What I learned from this is that we should be supporting radical availability of the morning after pill, unless we think it's our government's job to eliminate um, contraception. And unless you want to say that we're going to, as Jews, oppose um, the morning after pill because of the requirement to be fruitful and multiply, which as one famous rabbi once said, considering the population on the planet, I, and it was, that was a command not given to Jews, it was given to humanity, right? It was given to Adam. Uh, that it looks like given the population of the planet, the human species has accomplished that mitzvah and maybe can check it off. So that um, we should be supporting that the first 40 days of pregnancy. Uh, from 40 days on, it's not a nothing. But it's not a something that we would call a life. And during that time where it is not a nothing, but it is, also, it is considered to be an extension of the woman's body. Not that this says that people can self-mutilate their own bodies, but importantly, the agency is with the woman. This is not for others direct, to the woman whose body it is. In that sense, the Jewish tradition is very much saying the fetus is an extension of the woman's body, and so the decisions about it must be hers and cannot be regulated. And it is not murder unless the child is viable outside the womb, it does have, we do have implications about late-term abortion and how it's done. But overall, whether elective, it, what it really, so then where it leaves us is this place. Whether a woman choosing to do an elective abortion after 40 days and before the fetus is viable outside the womb, if that is wrong thing to do, it is between her and God. It is between her and her maker. It is not something that this legal corpus is basically saying. It's not something that men should be regulating or making criminal. So there are things that are immoral, that are not criminal. And those distinctions are very, very important. When do we make something criminal? I think the texts here are saying that, yes, if you ask your rabbi and your rabbi follows Moshe Feinstein, he's like, no, you can't get an elective abortion. I'm telling you, that's, that's the rabbinic decision. But can we make rules about that? No. It's the woman's agency. It's her body. And we can't make rules about what she can do with her body. Therefore, but we may want to say that um, let's not say that the status of, uh, of a fetus is just a nothing. It's just a thing. It's just a part of the body. It's more than that. And the texts are saying that it is. And so, but in the end of the day, it is between a woman and her rabbi and uh, a woman and her maker. 
whether, you know, and, and those discussions, I think, are, I think it's fruitful that me as a rabbi, I should be having discussions with my people about not the law and criminalization, but about women sharing experiences with other women about, do they regret that they had an elective abortion? Would they do something different? Do we want to think differently about it? Do we want to think about its moral dimensions? I mean, maybe that's the scary thing to talk about, and it's more comfortable to talk about um, about the United States Supreme Court. But that's where we should be. We should be talking about how do we understand the hard decisions that we make in our lives? We should be in the ethical area. But should it be criminalized according to Jewish law? I think the legal sources are very clear um, to say no and to great distinctions that are important for us today. Thanks for joining me.